Hello and thank you for joining for episode number 138 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we're going to hear from Jenny White who I'm sure needs no introduction. She's Professor of Social Anthropology at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies and the author of many books including the seminal Muslim Nationalism and the New Turks published back in 2012 and most recently Turkish Kaleidoscope Fractured Lives in a Time of Violence which is just about to be published by Princeton University Press. And it really is a book with a difference. It's actually a graphic novel set in the 1970s, a time of immense turbulence, violence and social upheaval that makes today's Turkey look about as chilled out as Denmark. Illustrated very strikingly by Ergun Gündüz, it tells the story of four main characters, students who get swept up on either side of the violent left-right clashes of the time, which came to a sudden, brutal end with the military coup of September 1980. Before we get started with the interview, remember that if you like what we're doing, you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Being a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount deal of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members who use a special code at the checkout that I send to you once you sign up. That deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview by email as soon as the episode is published. And you get transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extra ones not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge that $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Jenny White. She's written a number of academic books and in fact novels over the years. But this is her first graphic novel, a joint work as I said earlier with the illustrator Ergun Gündüz. So I started by asking Jenny White what it was that triggered her to embark on the project of a graphic novel exploring Turkey in the 1970s. You know, I, I realized at some point that I have written a book about every decade, almost every decade, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. And then, you know, I was like, okay, what's next? And at around that time, 2012, 2013, I started noticing, you know, when, especially when I was in Turkey, that the 70s, which had been completely ignored with the exception of, you know, a handful of memoirs and then some Cold War type analysis of left versus right. But there really wasn't a lot written about the 70s. And then in, in 2012, they had the generals on trial, the generals who carried out the 1980 coup that kind of shut down all the violence in the 70s and to be replaced by military violence. But suddenly the coup was in the news a lot because people were coming in to testify what happened to them. You know, after the coup, they were you know, exiled, 
tortured, uh, imprisoned, they lost their professions, and so on. And I kept waiting for someone to actually mention the 1970s, which is the run-up to all of this, and nobody did. You know, it's as if history started in 1980. And I find that a lot of the literature also kind of of starts there, or maybe even the 90s now. So the, the 70s were still buried, and it struck me that some of the people testifying that they were the victims after the coup were actually actually activists. They were actively involved in the violence before 1980. And also the 1970s started to be incorporated in sitcoms, programs on television that were of light-hearted, and people would say, oh, this is great, you know, the 1970s, before we had any religious people telling us what to do, and girls in miniskirts, and like, well, you know, that's not what I remember. I myself was there for three years, 1975 to 78, doing a master's at Hajitepe University in Ankara, and boy, my memory is completely different (laughs) from any of this. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just blackwashing the past, if you will, because I certainly was wasn't whitewashing it. It looked dark to me, and my memories were all pretty dark. So I I thought maybe I could just do a project about the 70s. I I felt this need to say something, but I didn't want it to be my voice. You know, my voice is not reliable. I was very young at the time, but I wanted other people's voices also. And I didn't want this to be another left-right kind of analysis. I wanted this to be the people, all kinds of people who were involved, because what I remember is that it was countrywide and the violence kind of enveloped even children in school. So it was not just the universities, it was you know people on the street, people in schools, children, you know, it's like nobody could stay out of it. Passers-by, people who didn't want to be involved but had no choice because there was no middle ground. You had to be one side or the other. You could not be in the middle. There was no middle. So I wanted to get kind of a triangulation on this period. So what I did was I wrote some grant proposals. I got I, I went on sabbatical in the end to Stockholm University, which invited me to come and do this project. So I spent uh, most of that time not in Stockholm, but in Turkey doing interviews. So I did 32 interviews with all kinds of people, both on the left and the right, about their memories of that time. I tried to include, so there were men and women, there were people who were not Muslim, there were minorities, there were Alevi, there were people who were activists, some of them quite prominent. There were people who were just bystanders who really just didn't want to get involved, but they still were involved. So this wide variety of people. And when I finally gathered all this material together and looked at it, it was quite striking. First of all, these people really wanted to talk. It's like nobody had ever asked them. And I realized as they were telling their story that these were turning points in their lives. They were all young at the time, you know, in their late teens or early 20s. And this is this is one of the most important things that happened to them in their lives. And I realized also very quickly that, you know, they, they were like reliving this as they were speaking. And some of them went on for many hours. So these were really quite remarkable interviews. And I realized right away that, first of all, the stories were fantastic. And also that what I had was a very varied account of how people got involved in violence 
you know, I, I didn't ask any particular questions. I wanted to be kind of surprised by what they told me. But I wouldn't let them talk about ideology. You know, because once you talk about, you know, well, I was in a Maoist group or I was this or I was that, you know where that's going to go. And I wanted the, the backstory. You know, how did you get involved? Who were your friends? What was it like? What do you remember? Um, what were the contradictions that, what struck you? So I had all of that without the ideological padding or, or legitimation. And when you look at it, I find that there isn't really that much difference between these people who were across the board very different, you know, including left and right, in the kinds of reasons they had for getting involved in these groups, for getting involved in violence. And then what happened to them when they were in there, very across the board, autocratic leader, your group leader who then decides everything about you in your life, what you wear. Um, there's the, the famous identification of left versus right by their facial hair, you know, certain mustaches on the left, certain mustaches on the right. Very, very regimented in every possible way. There's absolutely no way you could disagree with anything that your group leader said. The other thing that struck me was, despite this, people disagreed. And then what happened was that the group would often split over very trivial things, like you put your poster over my poster, it affected my masculinity. And then they would fight, and fight in ways where people were killed, you know, or reading a line from Karl Marx and, and disagreeing over what it meant that could lead to a split. And then once you disagreed with your leader, you were basically kicked out. And on occasion, the group would send an assassin to kill you because you turned your back on the group. You know, so there were all kinds of things going on that didn't seem to me to be related to ideology. So I just was totally blown away by these interviews. And I did a, a number of articles where I, I linked some of the themes that I recognized in, in the interviews to things I had already been thinking about, but that were very clear there, including the sort of political organization in these hierarchies around strong men and what exactly goes into that, the, the emphasis on obedience and loyalty rather than any other kind of quality, even whether or not you believe the same things that matters less than whether you have loyalty towards the leader and, you know, obey the leader. And I thought, oh, God, this sounds so familiar <laughs> in contemporary politics. This also tells us something about today. So I, I wrote some articles about that. And then at some point I thought, oh God, I'm just flattening the interviews by doing this. You know, I think it's worthwhile to do an analytical analysis of, say, the origins of factionalism and things like that. But I wanted the stories. I wanted to make those stories come alive again. So I thought about making a mixed book with some graphics. But my publisher said, so I, my, I published my previous book with Princeton University Press, and the editor there, the anthropology editor, was very excited about graphics. But he said, you can't have a book that is text with graphics because it's not marketable, right? It has to be either marketed as a book with a text or it has to be marketed as a graphic book. 
But he sent me the proofs for some books that they were actually publishing already, very serious books that are in graphic form. One of them was a book of the history of philosophy, and the other one was a problem in physics. These are graphic books, you know, following on from Mouse, uh, the famous Mouse book, which treated the Holocaust. And then there was the book about the Iranian Revolution, Persepolis, which I, I myself have used in class. So there, there are examples out there. Uh, there's also one uh, about Turkey growing up in a Kemalist secular household called Dare to, Dare to, oh, Dare, Dare to, to Disappoint. Yes. Yes, that's it. Dare yeah, to. Yeah, Özge, mind you, we've had her on the podcast yeah, uh, a couple of years yeah. ago. It was. So the, the the issue with those books, though, is that they tell one side of the story. But I thought, well, if I do a graphic book, I'd really like to have both sides in there. And that's, in fact, what I did. The problem is I can't draw. So I had to get another grant to, you know, to go and actually do the interviews and to hire an artist. And luckily, I found this fantastic artist. In fact, when I met him, I was very impressed and he was very professional. I loved his art. He had a very wide range of art. So he came up with the particular imagery for this book, for my, for our book, you know, by, by, we just sat down and talked about what it is I wanted to show. So it's unique, you know, the the particular style he has in in this book. And um, he also, I I needed to have a Turkish artist because I needed someone who could depict Turkey in the 1970s, which looks completely different from Turkey now. And um, Ergun Gündüz, the artist, was um, a teenager at the time, so he has some memories. And I sent a lot of photographs, and, and we did a lot of research, both of us, for getting everything right, you know, the imagery, the the slogans, and, and so on. And then I didn't actually realize when I met Ergen that he's famous. <laughs> it was only after we started working together that people said, oh my God, you're working with Ergen Gündüz, that's fantastic. So I'm very, very lucky. This book would be nothing without his art. So I came to Ergen with this 80-page, single-spaced text. And then he looked at it and he said, I can't draw this. I can't draw what's in people's heads or uh, somebody else's analysis. <laughs> so, so then I went back through many, many drafts until I came up with what is called a, a storyboard that is basically like a s- screenplay. You know, so-and-so walks in the room, so-and-so says this, which goes into the speech bubble. And then we had to spend, you know, just days and days and days over a period of a year in Istanbul, in his studio or elsewhere, parking ourselves in restaurants even after they closed to, to you know, go over every single word and decide whether that word is going to be graphic action in the picture whether it's going to be what comes out of someone's mouth or some small explanatory thing in a box. And it was intense. I mean, the last session we had, we went 13 hours without stopping. (laughs) I hopped in a cab at 3 o'clock in the morning to get back to the Swedish Institute. And we didn't even stop for lunch. I mean, we, we basically just ate standing up looking at these things. So it was quite an experience doing a graphic book. And I have to say, it took eight years. This book took eight years from the time I wrote the first great grant proposal to the time of publication. So, you know, I'm very, very happy to have it in my hand now. 
So as you mentioned there, you went to study at uh, Hajitepe University in 1975. So you witnessed quite a lot firsthand there at uh, Ground Zero in Ankara, basically, at this uh, extremely turbulent time on campus and elsewhere. So uh, how much of the book is based on personal experience, recollection? Um, some of some of it. Some of the stories are my stories. They're they're kind of things I'll never forget. I what I did. I should also say what I did was I combined the stories and the characters because you can't have thirty two different stories. And I told the people when I was interviewing them that this might happen because I was already thinking about how to what to do with this material, and they agreed to this. I'm not sure whether they expected to become cartoon characters. <laughs> anyway, none of the peop- none of the characters in the book are the actual people who, who I interviewed. They're composites, and it's called graphic fiction because, you know, at some point you had to have a story that pulls people through. So they have four main characters who are related to each other in various ways, which is not, of course, true. None of the people I interviewed had anything to do with each other. So, and then at the end, we the, the reviewers for Princeton University Press asked us to bring it up to the present. So Ergun and I talked about how to do that safely. <laughs> so we gave them children. So at that point, it was totally fiction, <laughs> even though the stories are true. So yeah, there was, when I, I got there on my own, I was uh, hosted by a family, but I was doing my master's at Hajitepe University, which had a a well-known program in uh, psychology, social psychology. So I I spent three years there, and I this was pre-internet, and I know there are newspapers and so on, but somehow I never got it that there was a low-scale civil war going on, you know. And I was I was very young, so I'm like, okay, I'll just go and get into this program, and and but when I got when the plane landed in Ankara, I got my first hint that there was something odd going on because at the base of the stairs where you get out of the plane, there was this large vehicle, which I now know is an armored personnel carrier, with a giant gun at the top of it. You know, it was standing right by the stairs as we got off. So I wondered what that was. And, uh, you know, I wandered around the city um, just looking, and I didn't see anything amiss because I didn't speak Turkish at the time. The, the classes were held in English. But once I got to campus, Hajitepe was one of those campuses that was half leftist and half rightist, unlike Middle East Technical University, which was mostly left uh, in terms of student affiliation. But I was out on the Beytepe campus, which had been newly built at the time, and that was way outside the city. Now it's, of course, in the city. But at the time, it was sort of out in the countryside, and we had to take buses back and forth to town. So the first thing I noticed... (laughs) I, one day I got on the wrong bus. Right? So I didn't know there were leftist and rightist buses. I just got on the bus that was going back to town. And they started singing what I recognized by that time was a fascist song or, you know, a right-wing song. And I looked around and I was, you know, I, I recognized I was teaching English at the time uh, somewhere and I recognized one of my students in the back. So I thought, okay, good, good. I, I know somebody on this bus. But then someone at the back of the bus got up with a briefcase and walked to the front of the bus to the, you know, just opposite me in one seat down. There was another guy sitting there who had obviously gotten on the wrong bus. And this guy went up behind him, two guys actually, went up behind him, pulled him up by the arms. Meanwhile, one of them opens his briefcase, takes out a sledgehammer and hits this guy on the head with the sledgehammer. And then they drag him bleeding out of to the front of the bus. The bus driver is terrified and he just keeps driving. And they said, open the door. 
they, he opens the door and they throw this guy out of the bus and then we keep going and they go back to singing these cheerful songs. Meanwhile, the woman next to me, sitting next to me, is like freaking out, just screaming. And I spent the rest of the trip back trying to calm her down. So this is actually in the book because like, why would it not be <laughs> in the book? I'll never forget that. Um, and it, it fits right in with, you know, everything else that was in the interviews. So, and, you know, I was shot at twice, not me personally, but I happened to be walking past a door once on campus, once in the city, a cafe. The door flies open, people run out, they're being shot at. So therefore, I'm being shot at. And once I actually felt the bullet kind of whistle by my head, you know, a little puff of air. So, you know, there were bombs going off all the time and nobody even paid any attention after a while because it was just, it was just everywhere. It was continuous. There were the gendarme or the soldiers everywhere. And I remember once trying to walk down a street without having a, a gun pointed directly at me. And I couldn't do it because they were just, you know, they were there with their fingers on the trigger everywhere. And at, on campus, it was actually quite soothing to have the gendarmes in the back. They had a camp right outside the psychology department back door because they were there to keep the students apart. Anyway, I could go on and on. <laughs> I, I seem to have developed post-traumatic stress syndrome because, you know, when you're there, it, everything seems normal. People are going on with their daily lives. They, they fall in love. They, they get married. They, you know, have their friends over. They do activities together. But once you're away from that situation, I, I went to England after that, and someone in a cafeteria dropped a tray, and that sound just completely triggered something, and I, I kind of freaked out. So it was, for me, also, you could see I'm kind of reliving it as I tell this story. <laughs> It, it was a very important time, and maybe that's why I didn't write about it. It just seemed so personal. But then I thought, well, people are getting old. This story should be told. And I know that since in the last, say, 15 years, there have been a lot more memoirs that have come out. But I thought maybe I could, I could just add something to that by doing something that would be very hard for a Turkish author to do, which is to bring the left and the right together. And I'm, I'm a little worried about that because I'm not sure people want Want that. I'm not sure people would be, you know, happy with having both sides humanized when everyone is still so polarized about, you know, what side you belong to. That that has not changed. Just the definition of the side has changed in Turkey. So going back to the interviews, you write in the introduction that, uh, quote, in the introductions, certain themes emerged, regardless of the speaker's ideological position, left or right, gender, social class, ethnic or religious affiliation, or rural urban characteristics. For instance, people joined political groups for many different reasons, not all of them political. When they joined the group, every aspect of their lives was controlled by an autocratic leader. There was no room for complexity or personal choice. A person's political affiliation could even be read from their clothing and shape of their facial hair. Women were expected to be asexual soldiers and also bring the tea. There was a lack of trust in individuals and no tolerance whatsoever for thinking or behaving differently. Agreement with and obedience to the leader were paramount. And uh, you mentioned it a bit before, but just explore that idea how these violently competing groups in many ways resembled each other, despite ostensibly believing completely opposing things. Mm. It may seem paradoxical to some people, but I think people who are familiar with Turkey will probably recognize quite a lot in that uh, description. I, in my previous work, I have written about how certain kinds of relationships, interpersonal relationships, 
that have to do with authority are repeated at different levels. It's like mirror images, you know, so, so what's in the family, the father, who in the traditional family at least is expected to have complete authority, and their children are not supposed to disagree with their father. You know, th this patriarchal authority is also repeated in the community, you know, for community leaders. Um, you see it also in how leaders treat their citizens. Like citizens are the children who should just obey. They're not people with rights who elected you. You know, you are the father figure and you act that out in a variety of ways. You see that kind of reference in political discourse all the time in Turkey. There's also a gendered aspect to it. The father is the defender of the women in the family. And in the whole concept of the nation, women are the vulnerable ones, right? So in one of my books, I have a discussion of boundaries. So uh, some soldiers on the border of Turkey had written out in rocks. The boundary is my honor. By boundary, they meant the boundary of the country, the actual physical boundary. But they were also referring to sexual honor in that you don't want the boundary penetrated, right? So women are often considered to be the, the mother of the nation. Um, the way that the imagery of women is used in the discourse, the political discourse and nationalist discourse, is that they they have to be protected against penetration by outsiders. And there are a number of ways in which that is played out in the way that the nation is represented. I don't know, I just found a lot of symmetry between what goes on in a politicized group and, you know, the emphasis on masculinity also, and on honor, and on sexual shame. I mean, the, even the leftists had these troops that would go out and try to catch people, you know, kissing or holding hands in the park, because that is besmirching the honor of the people, the folk, uh, as they put it. So it was the same on the right. So this attitude towards women was very contradictory, you know, so they, they should, especially on the left, they should be um, these asexual soldiers, budget. They were called budget, which is a kind of sister. Uh, it's a non-sexual word. And yet there were all of these romances, but they had to be approved by the leader. And certainly there wouldn't be any romances across the aisle between groups. So it was, it was completely fraught with tension, any kind of sexual relationships, because they were approved and not approved. And also they shouldn't even be there because of the the militaristic aspect of it, which was considered to be male, even though women were supposed to be also soldiers. So they're, they're, just, they're just full of contradictions, you know, across the board uh, when it comes to gender. But, but there is still this kind of patriarchal attitude that was expressed particularly in the way the group was organized, that, that there was a central figure who decided everything, decided what you read, what you think about what you read, what you wear, who you see, one of the other things that I had done in the past that seems to be reproduced here is that I was looking at the nature of autocratic leadership in general. And um, I came up with, this is after the interviews, actually, I came up with this notion of spindle, auto, uh, spindle autocracy or spindle politics, you know, thinking of the leader as a drop spindle, which is what village women use to spin raw wool. You know, it's just a stick that twirls. You 
hold it at the top and it twirls, and then you take raw wool and it, you know, winds itself around the, the stick, the spindle, and at the bottom comes out as yarn, you know, that you can then use to knit a sweater or something. And that's the image that came to my mind here, that you have raw recruits coming in and being networked. There's a good word in Turkish, terbiye, terbiye edilmiş. You terbiye children, you use that term for food when you kind of pound the meat to make it tender. <laughs> but it also means that you you behave, right? So it's like the perfect word for this. So you these raw recruits get networked. They network with each other around this leader, and they become terbiye. They become obedient and loyal. And then what happens in the spindle happens in real life, that then they leave, right? Even though it's so dangerous to break off from these groups, new knowledge is coming in all the time, maybe from a an uncle who is a migrant worker in France and who brings back some books, you know, what's going on in Europe. Someone goes to Poland and gets this eye-opening experience about communism. You know, just people are constantly developing their ideas. And at some point, if it comes into contradiction with their group leader, then there's a there's a that's a challenge and that is usually solved in not necessarily violent, but uh, the person is basically kicked out. And if you think about it on a in a larger scale, if I think political parties in Turkey operate on the same principle, that if you disagree, you leave, you become the hain, the traitor, right? The leader is the hero, the kahraman, and then you leave and you become the traitor. And the traitor, being called a traitor in Turkey is very common and it's very dangerous because then you get death threats and, and so on. So that's what happens in this spindle. People leave after they have any kind of disagreement, which is easy to have because it's a personal, all these relationships are personal relationships. They're not based on the ideology or the particular skills that you have. It's your personal relationship to the leader and to other people in your in your network. Right? So if the person leaves, they take their network with them and then they go and maybe found another spindle or find another spindle, someone else's spindle that they then join to. So there's this constant splitting off. And you, we can see that in contemporary Turkish politics, you know, with the, all these new parties starting, you know, luring people away and starting their own spindle where they want people to follow them because they personally value them. So the spindle is always there. The spindle is, looks like it's a permanent feature. It's a strong man. You have a kind of genealogy of spindles. Ask anyone and they will give you the genealogy of their current beliefs through the listing of the people that they are descended from in terms of ideas. So you have this this long list of heroes. They don't always have to be politicians. They were also heroes uh, on the left in Deniz Gezmich, for instance, you know, in, in the 70s. And you make reference to those people, those politicians, uh, Menderes, uh, and so on. Erdogan will be one of those spindles. And so there's this illusion of strength and permanence around the strongman, when in fact things are constantly happening, that the raw recruits move down the spindle and move out away uh, into other roles in society uh, or uh, join other spindles. So to me, this is the contradiction of Turkish politics, this illusion of the strongman continuity and strength 
contradicted by the constant splitting. You know, I sort of pushed this back in history a little bit, in the Republican history, and it happens all the time. And, and the other thing that happens all the time is that when these splits occur, there is a demonization of the person that split off that's quite remarkable and strong. So that's one aspect that I think is replicated in the book, but without without the analysis, right? You can actually see it happen. And there was also a, a, a disconnect between the ideology, what the activists believed they were doing for the people and what the people needed. So that's also becomes very clear in the book, that at some point you act in the name of the people, but you've lost touch with the people. And, and also the, you know, I'm talking a lot about the left, but on the right, the people also play a role, the people in Turkish history. We go back through the childhoods of some of the, the main actors and some of the other characters to, to kind of see how they got where they are. You know, what does it mean to be uh, an idealist or a rightist? And, and two of the characters actually debate that because they both came out of the same family background and they both value the same thing, but they value it in different ways with regard to being on the right. So you know, I just, I love the way in which a graphic book lets you put all of these contradictions and all of these nuances back into the analysis, back into the story that, you know, kind of get pressed out when you're doing, you know, an analysis of something more abstract like factionalism. <laughs> The 1970s in Turkey is remembered in the popular imagination as obviously this time of great turbulence, chaos, economic instability, political instability and uh, lack of security. And uh, another thing that people say about the era is that many people, perhaps the overwhelming majority of people actually, were relieved when the September 1980 military coup occurred uh, as a way to really brutally put a lid on all this chaos. And obviously one can't write uh, about this era of the 1970s without the knowledge of the coup that would come in 1980. Uh, I just wonder, did you have that in mind as you wrote the book, you know, um, people's retrospective reflections about how they remembered this sense of relief uh, provided by the coup and, and the aftermath that was completely different to what went on before and obviously had huge ramifications for what would happen in Turkey in the subsequent decades as obviously we're still seeing the ramifications of that decision in 1980 today. 
Well, I tried to I tried to adhere closely to what I was hearing rather than what I was thinking, but that actually was my experience as well. I, I was no longer there. I left in 1978, but I was still in touch. People wrote me letters and, and so on. That people were relieved. It was such a stressful period. I'm sure it's it wasn't even obvious to most people how relieved they were until it stopped. But it didn't really stop if you were on the left and, and some for some people on the right, because the three years in which the, the military was in power was so brutal, you know, that people really were still trying to escaping or hiding. However, the rest of the people, the ones who were really never wanted to be involved and never wanted to be on one side or the other, but had no choice, the people who now could see themselves in a middle I think many of them were relieved. And one of the characters actually uh, is represents that view in there. I do have the coup because people talked about the coup. You know, what happened to all of the characters during the coup and then after the coup and then, you know, going forward to the present. I This is fiction. I have some of the characters meeting by accident decades later and then saying what happened to them and then telling about their children. And now I think... The coup is being reinvented continually. It got reinvented when people came to testify at the trial in 2012, the trial of the generals who carried out the coup. But the coup itself has been reinterpreted as not being due to internal Turkish factioning, but due to you know CIA activity, a foreign plot to uh, destroy Turkey. So somehow the coup has taken on all of these these different cloaks, you know, that that I don't really recognize them. But of course, I was only one person, right? So that's one of the reasons I did this this interviews to see what other people thought was going on. You know, I didn't I didn't see any CIA activity, but then why would I? I was just a student. So I I'm not trying to be the voice of Turkey or the voice of the Turks or the voice of the left or the right. I'm just one voice, one observer who is not completely reliable. And I don't think the other people I interviewed are also have the truth. You know, it's always just from one particular position that you're looking at this from. And even though I try to vary those positions uh, in choosing who I interviewed, I don't know, the, the coup seems to take on new roles, you know, in every decade. <laughs> And get reinterpreted, but this is this is something that happens in Turkish history. Also, I I think that what happens in every generation is that they a new history is invented. So now we have the Ottoman history, which is also a pastiche of you know romanticized Ottoman elements, where where no attention is paid in popular discourse or political discourse. No attention is paid to authenticity, which doesn't really matter. It, what matters is the image in the new history of soldiers or heads of previous Turkic states in costume is a strange thing that, you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to be authentic. It has no roots. So I think that the coup gets reinvented. Lots of things get reinvented. Now we have the media to help us with that. The television series that, that take all different parts of history and reinvent them. Uh, with some some nod to what actually happened according to historians, but not a very big nod. So I kind of pull that in as well. That's not actually in the book, 
but it's one of the reasons that I wanted to actually record as closely as I could what I think happened in the 1970s, which of course, again, is, an, you know, you could think of that as an invention, a personal invention on my part. By the time it gets to the book, it's been weeded and different people have spoken and what they've said has been merged and, and reproduced in a story that is not their story. So everything that we do really is is a kind of reinvention. But I think Turkey, because of its particular history, it's much more subject to that kind of massive reinvention of its history. So have you got plans for the book to appear in Turkish and be published in Turkey in the near future? Yes, the publisher is already talking to, I think, a couple of uh, publishers in Turkey for translation. It, it must come out in Turkish. I think graphic books are a very good vessel for conveying ideas, and, and they're easily understood by ordinary people who would probably have trouble with an academic book full of jargon and <laughs> like um, it's a very different process reading a graphic book which has a story that pulls you in and that is full of nuances. I can imagine a classroom, not just a classroom on Turkey, but a classroom on you know any kind of social violence, political violence, sociology, people who who work with young people who have been in these kinds of groups or who are in danger of joining these kinds of groups or becoming radicalized. You can read this book and pull out the kinds of nuanced understanding that is needed for whatever you are trying to do. An academic book kind of tells you what the author thinks you need to know, whereas I think these graphic books are very flexible in what they can give to you because they are so nuanced. And now you've got a flavor for this. Will you be producing any more graphic novels? I mean, I really enjoyed the book, but it's only just over 100 pages. And it ends with a series of profiles of a new generation with uh, different profiles. Mm -hmm. I wondered if that was a kind of tantalizing little touch there to kind of tease the reader. No, not not at the moment, in part because, as I told you, it took me eight years to write this book. You have to get funding. You have to get funding for the artist. It took Ergun many months to draw these hundred pages. It's It's very intensive both the artwork and the writing and combining them. And so I, I would also have to do more interviews, which of course now is not possible. And also to have just an idea about why I would be doing the interviews. I, this book, I felt very strongly uh, because of my own experience that I wanted to write this book. And, and you know, the book came out of that desire. And I, I have other things on tap for, you know, more scholarly things that talk about what's going on now. And there are so many, so many young scholars who are looking into exactly what's going on now. Uh, very, very good work coming out. So I feel almost intimidated <laughs> by all these, you know, wonderful new books and articles that are being published. Maybe I don't have that much to say about the present that isn't already being said very well by other people. So I, I don't know. I have other projects that I'm, I'm working on. Also, you know, I've been working in Turkey for a very long time. So I have a lot of field notes and just a lot of things I want to write so that are not necessarily just an analysis of what's going on now. The, the, the pictures at the end of the children and their stories are meant to encapsulate all the things that have happened since 1980 in Turkey. You know, the, the 1983 move to open the economy uh, under Özal, 
I came back to Turkey in 1983 and I almost didn't recognize it. it. You know, it had been literally dark before, at least Ankara, very polluted and people were black because it didn't get dirty so quickly. And it was a dark time because of the violence and, and the fear. You know, and if you ask people about their childhood, they'll say, oh, I had such a wonderful time, even though there were bombs going off uh, in the background. But that's true. I mean, the, the other thing that the book talks about is how people still live their lives like their ordinary lives in the midst of this. But then in the, in the 1980s, those lives changed dramatically. You know, you could suddenly import things, uh, you could export things, new, new groups of people in the country who had been kind of left out of the economic development, you know, were suddenly able to be entrepreneurs, thus creating the setting for the development of the Islamist parties under Erbakan and then um, the AKP under Erdogan, present party. So, you know, you come back and you have all kinds of commercial products available that were not available before. In the 70s, I used to bring everybody kitchen magnets when I came back because nobody could get kitchen magnets. It was like a big deal. And so obviously in the 1980s, everybody had kitchen magnets. They had everything. So I had a harder time figuring out what to bring as gifts. So, you know, people people had aspirations. People could travel. It was very hard to travel for most people in the 1970s. You couldn't take money, Turkish money abroad. So suddenly globalization happened, um, the market happened, commercialization happened, and it, it changed everything. I, I think of that as the turning point in, in Turkey for you know a, an entirely new history opening up. That was Jenny White. Many thanks to her for joining for this episode number 138. The track you heard in the middle of our conversation was Tulay Özer's 1977 interpretation of Uzun İnce Bir Yol Dayım, I'm on a long and narrow road, a well-known folk song with words by the famous folk poet Aşık Vesel. The tune at the start of the episode, by the way, was Toroslar, or the Taurus Mountains, by the group Morlar. And at the end of this episode, you're going to hear the legendary singer Selda Barjan singing her version of Çemberimde Guloya, which is about a woman making embroidery lace while waiting for her lover who's in jail for his leftist ideals. If you want to hear more, there's a terrific playlist, actually, that's been specially created for the book, Songs Capturing the Spirit of the Era. It's available on Spotify, and I'll post the link over at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com if you're interested. If you're a member, check out the email that I sent out with this episode as I've included the link to that Spotify playlist there. I've also included a link to the article on spindle autocracy that we were talking about in the interview, which is also well worth a read. Remember, if you haven't yet, you can also join as a member to support Turkey Book Talk on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page, And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter put together by the journalists Razier Akkoc and Diego Cupolo, a package bringing together 
all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.